Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. It's your body, but sometimes you can be your own worst enemy. When the body attacks itself, the world of rheumatology. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Hello, I'm Dr. Jill Cruz. Welcome to tonight's On Call with the Prairie Doc program, celebrating 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. Continuing that tradition is our goal for tonight's discussion. Joining us tonight here in our studio on the South Dakota State University campus in Brookings is Dr. Mark Versell with Avera Medical Group Rheumatology, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And joining us from Hyannis, Massachusetts is Dr. Martina Zegenbein of the Cape Cod Rheumatology Center. Welcome, I am so glad to have you guys uh, both joining me here today. Thanks so. for having us. Yes, Mark, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, how long you've been in um, Sioux Falls? And yeah, so my wife and I moved to Sioux Falls two years ago. Uh, before that, we were living in Northwest Indiana. Um, I grew up in Northwest Indiana outside of Chicago, did my undergraduate training in um, Indiana Wesleyan University, and then um, went to medical school at Midwestern University, Chicago College Osteopathic, where I did my residency as well as my fellowship. So when I met my wife, she was at Notre Dame. Uh, we moved to the middle, uh, got married, and then I practiced there for a couple of years before we moved here to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Excellent. Always glad to have a fellow DO here. So, yes, and moved to South Dakota. Your wife has a job here? Uh, she's a professor at Augie. Yay, go yeah. Augie. That's my alma mater. So, excellent. All right. Well, Martina, you'd like to tell us a little bit about um, yourself and uh, what you've been uh, training, how long you've been working? Yes, of course. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a big honor to be here on your show. I did my medical school at Shafarik University in Slovakia. Uh, I graduated in 2000 and I moved to the United States in 2001. Um, I did my residency in rheumatology fellowship uh, and finished in 2006. Um, I did my rheumatology fellowship at Boston Medical Center in Boston and I practiced most of the years since then in uh, Wisconsin and last year I decided to move to the east coast because i love the ocean and i that's how i ended up here i interviewed here in july 2020 and um, i moved here in march 2021. okay well i did my residency in baraboo wisconsin so i have to ask what part of wisconsin were you in i was in central wisconsin um wasa western area baraboo i think was like two hours by uh, car drive for me yeah, a small world. All right. Well, I'm so glad you got that little Midwest connection with us here. So excellent. Do either of you have like a specific um, thing that you like to specialize in with rheumatology or are you just kind of a, a broad general take anything uh, under that umbrella? I, I do. I'm, I'm going to go first. Uh, I recently embraced my interest and love for fibromyalgia and um, in the last five months, I started um, 
focusing and accepting more patients who suffer with or from fibromyalgia. So that's my area of uh, great interest. I really um, enjoy all the literature, all the science behind it and what could be done. Excellent. Mark, what do the, you have any... The breadth of it makes, uh, makes me excited on a daily basis. The inflammatory arthritis to the more severe vasculitic cases, um, some of the musculoskeletal ultrasound stuff that we do as well. Um, it's a quite an enjoyable field, so really the breadth of it is what I enjoy. All right, and that's what I love about medicine. There's some people that want to find one topic and just dive head in and focus on that, and other people say, I love it all, I want to learn about it all, and we need both. So. Wonderful. I am so glad that uh, we can talk about this. So, excellent. Well, um, we are looking forward to answering your questions about rheumatology. Call 1-888-376-6225. Send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. And to encourage your questions, those of you who ask a question during the first 20 minutes of tonight's program will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but be sure to provide your name and contact information when you submit your questions so we can contact the winner. While we don't hear the term rheumatism very often anymore, that doesn't mean that rheumatic diseases aren't prevalent. These are autoimmune and inflammatory diseases that can cause your immune system to attack your joints, muscles, bones, and organs. Naturally, this begs the question, why? Why, why does our body betray us so? It's, it's frustrating. The answer is often we don't know. Um, it's usually a combination of factors. There's usually a multi-hit type of hypothesis that we apply. A lot of people have a family history of it, but in some cases that only confers about a 5% lifetime risk, whereas other things like environmental factors can contribute as well. All right, and uh, Martina, what are there any big environmental factors that uh, you've seen that seem to trigger some of these things with patients? Not that I'm aware of, but I do want to comment on this multiple trigger theory. Um, I have seen quite a few patients with rheumatoid arthritis whose um, disease onset follows major um, episode of stress or major area of their lives with stress. And this happened to be actually me myself. I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis about five years ago. I um, was going through a very stressful period of uh, my life, uh, very joyous too. I gave birth in November and developed symptoms of um, joint pain, stiffness, uh, three months after giving birth. And I was first describing it just to, I'm getting old because I was 41 when I gave birth. And then, so I was in denial. But anyways, I have been noticing that with other patients, when I dig into what has been happening, a very frequently, I don't want to say in all cases, but very frequently, if it's middle age onset rheumatoid arthritis, this, this, is, um, this can follow an uh, episode of stress. It does seem to affect women more than men. Is that something that you guys see in your practice? Is it predominantly female? It has classically been. You know, um, really the, the, the misconception is that a lot of rheumatoid arthritis or autoimmune disease affects people later in life, but we tend to see a younger predominance, although 
as she pointed out, we see it all throughout life at different ages too. So biology doesn't really know boundaries very well. So we tend to see it all across the spectrum. I think it also depends on what kind, of, what which type of rheumatic disease it is. Um, you know, rheumatoid arthritis can affect any um, age group. Um, lupus, uh, also, but we do see it a lot in young people, at least in my practice previously. And uh, when you see an older male with uh, toe pain, I'm I'm, re I'm presenting kind of textbook scenario, but you think of gout or crystalline arthritis more than rheumatoid arthritis. So it's the demographics do matter. All right. So, and I know a lot of us think about, you know, kind of the old grandmas with kind of the crunched over fingers and, and how long does those deformities take really to develop? Is that kind of a, a thing that happens um, over a period of years or is that something that can be prevented now with medications? I've, I've been fortunate enough to start practicing after the advent of things like biologic agents for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, which have really shifted our perspective on our approaches to rheumatoid arthritis. Our goals now are things like remission or at least very low disease activity. And what we know about rheumatoid arthritis is that the higher the disease activity, the higher the risk is for destructive joint changes, along with other things like cardiovascular disease risk that start to rise as well. So if we bring that disease activity down sufficiently with our immunosuppressives, we see those risks start to reduce as well. So I, I don't have patients regularly progress to the crippling forms of arthritis once it's well controlled. All right. Well, we definitely have a lot of uh, people who are calling in right now. Uh, there was a question on Facebook. When the ANA comes back positive, uh, 1 to 160, does that mean it's rheumatoid arthritis or could it be something else? Um, I would say explain to the viewers what is an ANA in the first place and what does a positive ANA mean? Martina, do you want to take that one? Sure. Um, so ANA stands for anti-nuclear antibody. It means the body is producing antibodies against cells, which is usually a no-no. Usually our bodies have a mechanism to prevent our immune system to produce antibodies against our own cells. But the reason I started smiling when you mentioned positive ANA is because positive ANA test is extremely non-specific test, meaning it can be positive and it doesn't mean anything. It can be a leftover or inheritance from the ancestors who might have had an autoimmune illness. It might have happened for no good explainable reason. And um, according to what studies you look at, um, up to 20% of population can have a positive ANA and only fraction of those have an autoimmune illness. So it's important to look at the contacts, talk to the patient, examine them, and um, yeah, go from there. So you guys really have to be excellent detectives to know what's a red herring with some of these labs and what you need to pursue further and which of the usual suspects is most likely one to look into more. Certainly, I, we tend to find that there's not one single lab test that by itself in a vacuum confers a diagnosis of an autoimmune disease. We spend quite a bit of time with patients through a history and physical exam and looking through their life to determine whether they have an autoimmune component to an arthritis or a joint pain or, or muscle pain. So a lot going on. Um, a caller uh, was wondering, if you have osteoporosis, does that mean you're going to get rheumatoid arthritis? Do they go hand in hand? Can you have both at the same time? Do you only get one? Mark, do you want to? Sure. So, so 
certain things can increase the risk for osteoporosis, some of those being nutritional deficiencies, vitamin D deficiencies, hormonal changes over the course of life. Certainly, rheumatoid arthritis is a risk factor for the development of osteoporosis, but osteoporosis in and of itself is not an autoimmune disease. Um, and so they're, they're separate things. They do not directly um, increase the risk for rheumatoid arthritis. All right, excellent. So um, a viewer from Belfouche states that they have rheumatoid arthritis and neuralgia, and um, they wondered what should they do for treatments? Is there other advice, um, different treatments when you have both the fibromyalgia and the neuralgia, or um, are they different? Uh, this sounds like a question for Martina. <laughs> I, I might have missed what was the um, first one, that she has fibromyalgia and what? And, rheuma and rheumatoid arthritis as a diagnosis. Oh, rheumatoid arthritis, I see. Yeah, so they do differ um, quite a bit because rheumatoid arthritis is, um, the basis for rheumatoid arthritis is inflammation in the joints that if left untreated can can lead to joint damage. That's the main reason we treat people to prevent the joint damage. Yes, we want to approach or prevent the pain, but the major reason for treatment is to prevent damage. On the other hand, fibromyalgia, which also means real pain, people have real pain, but there is no detectable damage so or, or inflammation. So currently, the school of thought is that Fibromyalgia is not an autoimmune or inflammatory disorder, and the treatment is that's why different. Uh, and I, I don't want to take too much. Uh, I, I don't want to take uh, too much time, but you can. I can talk about that a little bit uh, also about how I approach uh, fibromyalgia. So two separate conditions, two separate treatment plans. Um, one may not work for. It's not a one size fits all, and even for patients, one size is not fitting all for diagnosis or treatment of any of these diseases, is it? Certainly. Okay. Excellent. Well, diagnosing and treating some rheumatic diseases can be difficult, as is the case with lupus. Imagine a condition with symptoms that present differently in each person who has it, and no currently approved lab test can definitively confirm the diagnosis. Imagine that the symptoms can flare up and then mysteriously disappear, including fatigue, low-grade fevers, joint pain, and mouth sores. All of these symptoms overlap with multiple other conditions, further complicating the diagnosis. Imagine that the best available method for diagnosing this ailment is a manual checklist of 11 criteria, and the patient suffers from at least four they can receive a diagnosis on a scale from definite, probable, or possible. What if I told you this condition is caused by an attack on the body by its own immune system? And the main way to treat this is by suppressing the immune system, the immune system we depend on to help protect our bodies from infection. The course of this illness can range from mild to rapidly progressing to organ failure and death. This condition is real and has the most appropriate name means the wolf in Latin. The condition is systemic lupus erythematosus, a condition which evades diagnosis and is difficult to treat. Lupus mainly affects women between the ages of 15 and 40, particularly women of color. For many busy young women with lupus, symptoms are often brushed off by family and friends, and unfortunately, 
sometimes by healthcare providers, who may just view the patient as being tired or overworked. Routine wellness labs, which serve as an alert system for other illnesses, provide no indication of lupus. Patients who persist and find someone to further investigate their symptoms may be misdiagnosed with a myriad of other conditions, sometimes resulting in unnecessary medications, treatments, and further suffering. Work is underway to better understand lupus. The trigger that causes the immune system to start attacking itself is not known, but scientists suspect it involves a combination of genetic and environmental factors. Research and awareness are making a difference. In the 1950s, the five and 10 year survival rate of lupus patients was less than 50%. Since then, the number has improved to over 90%. This increase in survival rate stems from improvements in our ability to diagnose lupus earlier and to provide better treatment once diagnosed. But we must do better. Early diagnosis of lupus requires patients and healthcare workers working together to persist in finding this wolf in sheep's clothing. If you or a loved one has concerns about lupus or other autoimmune conditions, talk with your doctor and see if a consultation with a rheumatologist would be beneficial. As the graphic noted, nine out of 10 people with lupus are women. One of those women is my mother. Lupus was really started when I was in the 40s. Henrietta Cruz's doctors were not sure how to diagnose her health issue. At one time, the doctor thought it was a rheumatoid arthritis. And so we kind of went with rheumatoid arthritis. And I remember when he came in, it, he said, you know, I think it's lupus. The symptoms can affect your everyday life. Fatigue is one thing, just being very, very tired. And I taught junior high English. So that's, you know, that's kind of a demanding job with seventh and eighth graders. Henrietta went months before finding out she had lupus. One day I'd feel better, so I'd cancel an appointment. You know, because I feel fine. There wasn't a need to go in. I was mowing during the summer and a wire came up from the rider, rider mower and cut my leg and that wouldn't heal. So, you know, that, that was another kind of clue that something was going on. Henrietta's daughter, Jill Cruz, a prairie doc, was only 10 years old at the time. It was challenging. Um, there was a lot of times where she was in and out of the hospital. Um, I didn't really know what was going on. Life kind of had to go on. I was still doing my homework, you know, in my mom's hospital room. The experience helped shape her career in medicine today. It's really helped to, again, look for this disease because it's such a vague condition that there's no clear cut, this is the you know, diagnosis and there's no really good lab. So I've sent a lot of people to rheumatologists saying, you know, there's something I'm concerned about and they need to do some further testing uh, with it. It also, I think, has helped me be a better doctor and more compassionate to other patients um, to understand what it's like to be the family members. Henrietta says she is doing very well now. Not to be discouraged because you could get kind of down on 
on yourself and it's really then then stress kind of affects it makes the matters worse so it's really to not be discouraged that tomorrow will be probably be a better day she is the toughest woman i know so um yeah, I don't know how you've done half the things you've done. You're incredibly strong. All right, so that's uh, my first introduction to medicine was uh, my mom's hospital room. And, and like I said, I, I learned where all the back staircases were and spent a lot of time uh, finding various vending machines and um, which lobbies had remotes so I could change the channel on the TV and watch cartoons. And <laughs> um, But yeah, I, I think uh, it's a frustrating disease for the family members. It's frustrating disease for the patients. Um, and, and I understand totally why patients and their families can get so frustrated with these diagnoses because they want an answer. They want to know what's going on. They want to know how can we fix it. And sometimes the hardest thing I think as a doctor is to say, I don't know, but we're, we're trying to find it. Or I, I, I know it's not this. And sometimes that's the best that I'm able to do. How does that uh, feel for you guys sometimes where you say, you know, we're, we're using all of this information together, but nothing's really clear how. I think most rheumatologists have had the experience where, you know, we'll see an inflammatory arthritis and we'll watch it for a while and it doesn't necessarily behave like a classic rheumatoid arthritis will. And um, certainly I, I've seen those patients evolve into lupus. You know, I think that the long-term relationship that we have with our patients typically helps to differentiate that over time. Um, many autoimmune diseases can take months to years to actually determine to the, the uh, final diagnosis of, um, and it can be challenging. Sometimes it's clear cut and it happens quickly and we get to treatment quickly. Um, sometimes even in those cases, the disease morphs and we need to adjust treatment therapies. You know, one of the more rewarding things about what we do is get to work with patients like your mother who we develop long-term relationships with and um, get a sense for their well-being and where their health is at. And so we can help them navigate their symptoms, which can be really hard to describe sometimes. Yeah. So, uh, Martina, anything you want to add to that? I I agree with Mark 100%. First of all, I appreciate you sharing your mom's story, and I'm so glad that she is better. Um, and just to add to what Mark said, I do end up telling patients sometimes, I'm not sure, but I'm committed to figuring it out. And, um, you know, I stay with, I said, I'm going to stay with you until we figure out what it is. Sometimes, uh, rarely, I do refer out for second opinion. Sometimes it helps to have a second set of eyes, and but as you pointed out in your um, uh, video, lupus can be very um, confusing in, initially to diagnose, and um, yeah, it's a process. Mm -hmm. So a uh, viewer uh, wants to know about diagnosing lupus and fibromyalgia. Are they related? Are they different? Uh, how do you tell one from the other? My approach often is to try to differentiate into different camps, patients will often come in with complaints of pain, and um, there could be many, many causes for pain. You know, whether it's fibromyalgia, as Martina described earlier, with 
without tissue damage, without a discernible diagnostic test that points in that direction. Um, whereas sometimes the immune system can be responsible for it. And that has typically fairly discrete symptoms that we can often pick up on, but as your mother articulated in her video, sometimes it can take a while to arrive at that diagnosis. Um, but they're different conditions, and so they can coexist together, and that's, that's what's hard about pain. A patient's experience may be, you know, overall, they're feeling fatigued, a lot of pain, a lot of fatigue, a lot of difficulty with motion. The question is, which part of that do we have to immunosuppress on the lupus side, and which part do we have to support with other motivational ways and lifestyle adjustments to help um, overcome that? Excellent. All right. Um, Martina, a viewer is asking, how is lupus different from scleroderma? That's another um, condition. A good question. Yeah. Um, so scleroderma and lupus, there are two different diseases on the autoimmune spectrum. A scleroderma, the textbook presentation is when people have thick skin, when they, literally they have trouble bending the fingers. That's kind of one of the hallmarks of uh, systemic sclerosis or scleroderma. I did have patients who had overlap of uh, lupus and scleroderma, especially when I was doing my fellowship, lupus fellowship at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Um, but generally speaking, um, you can tell them apart by the symptoms. So scleroderma, as I said, they have severe rainouts, the skin thickening or as if scarring. Uh, they may have additional symptoms such as difficulty swallowing or heartburn and they may have lung involvement with lupus. Depending on what age they present, they will have joint pain, rashes, pleurisy, which means chest pain with deep breathing. Uh, and it's the, the picture together, the, the, the group of symptoms that you evaluate together that will make you, um, that will allow you to arrive at the final diagnosis. Excellent. We talk a lot about uh, rashes with lupus specifically. I know that it has the classic, what we call the butterfly rash. Uh, could you explain that a little bit, Mark, to um, the viewers? What, what When we're talking about a butterfly rash, what is that? Uh, sure. So patients will, I, I think the biggest hallmark of a lupus-related rash is photosensitivity. Um, one of the characteristics of lupus is somewhat of a defect in um, your immunity with it having a hard time to clean up damaged tissue, and it propagates a, a fairly robust robust inflammatory response, meaning um, transient small amounts of UV light exposure can sometimes cause almost like a sunburn-like appearance, and that typically will show up across the cheeks um, and across the bridge of the nose as well. But it can show up in other places too, you know, sometimes in some of the other autoimmune disorders too, dermatomyositis being some of those, it, it can also show up, you know, in any photosensitive areas in the summertime where, you know, maybe a V-neck sign or even on the upper arms we'll see those rashes develop too. So our typical farmer's tan yeah, there, you're going to be looking Anything in those that's areas. unexposed. And yeah. that's one of the, the big uh, treatment goals is just to limit UV light exposure, actually. Yes, I remember uh, with my mom, when she first got her diagnosis, we were hunting for high SPF sunscreen. And at that time, that was when people were still using baby oil sure. and, and SPF 4, and we're looking for 50 and couldn't find it. Now you can find it anywhere. It's, it's very easy to find those higher SPF sunscreens. So, good. All right, well, a viewer uh, would like to know if there's any connection between diet and arthritis, and if so, what sh food should be avoided or encouraged? I think it depends on the type of arthritis. I don't, I don't mean to cut you off. I, I think we're probably no, no. Um, <laughs> gonna about to say the same thing. When you think of things like gout, 
Um, that's the one that comes to mind classically that has certain foods that are, are, are high risks or high triggers for it. Um, you know, things like high fructose corn syrup being one of the highest risk factors for the development of gout over the course of life, but also classically things like shellfish, uh, whiskeys, beers, that type of thing for different things that can provoke uh, elevated uric acid or at least fluctuations in the blood levels of uric acid triggering a gout attack. Okay, excellent. So we have got some very good questions here from viewers. A viewer here is wanting to know the connection between uh, polymyalgia rheumatica and chronic iritis and glaucoma. Um, Martina, any insight into that? So the connection between PMR and glaucoma would stem from long-term steroid use that you would use for polymyalgia rheumatica. As a result of steroid use, you can develop elevated pressure in the eye. But the iritis does not uh, ring a bell. At least I cannot uh, recall that there is a connection unless there is something else going on. People who have spondylitis or spondylarthropathy can have iritis. And uh, I wonder whether there is a connection that people had iritis and were using steroids for that, and as a result of that developed glaucoma. That would be my, I don't know, Mark, what do you think? That's the first thing that comes to mind. You know, we use steroids um, is as little as able, but sometimes for certain conditions like polymyalgia rheumatica, the average length of steroid use is about a year or more um, because slow tapers are often necessary. And so the, the side effects from some of the steroids that we use, sometimes as just rescue medicines, can build up over time and cause different, different effects with the eyes. Okay, all right. So a um, Yankton viewers stated they had a stem cell transplant in 2018 to treat uh, AML and then developed chronic graft-versus-host disease about a year later. Um, does graft-versus-host, is that in kind of that autoimmune family or is that kind of a separate entity? It is, and, and what you'll come to find within the field of rheumatology and within medicine is that um, different fields will approach um, different forms of autoimmune disease differently. So that one typically falls within the transplant medicine, which is a very specialized form of medicine, um, where your body recognizes something that doesn't belong and starts to fight it off, essentially. Okay. Excellent. So, a caller is wondering if rheumatoid arthritis is always diagnosed by blood tests or what are the ways do you test for that disease? Uh, Martina, how would you diagnose that? Thank you for the question. There are, viewers are asking good questions. Uh, as Mark alluded to before, you, there is no single test. So, what we do as rheumatologists in the office, we, uh, patients come with a complaint of joint pain, we talk to them, we gather as much history as possible because their story helps us answer some questions and helps us develop a differential diagnosis. You examine them, and usually the typical rheumatoid arthritis does have evidence of inflammation on joint exam, and typically it's small joints, it's symmetric, uh, and that's how you make a diagnosis. So um, that would lead me to another um, kind of segue to that, is that sometimes people have a positive rheumatoid factor but they don't have any symptoms or any evidence of inflammation. And sometimes it just means that it may develop later or it's, again, um, something that was genetically inherited uh, from um, ancestors. And, and in the opposite, there's the seronegative rheumatoid arthritis where they have it and then the lab tests show 
nothing. How do you diagnose that? That always baffles me that you guys are so smart. We, well, it's, we spend a lot of time with our patients, usually over a couple of visits, um, going through those types of things. Part of the, the workup for something like a seronegative arthritis is to ensure that there's nothing else going on. Our immune systems are hardwired to do multiple things, primarily fight off infections and repair tissue. And so one of the big things that we'll always do you know, during our patients' visits is talk through maybe other risk factors, look for other things like um, hepatitis C, for instance, which can certainly cause um, joint inflammation and stiffness and um, kind of have to go digging a little bit more. There, there's more to the workup than um, just the lab tests for the rheumatoid arthritis, but often the history and physical is, is how we get there over time. Wonderful. So it sounds like you guys are really good detectives and you listen to the patient, you listen to what they tell you, you listen to what their body is telling you, you listen what to the labs. So you guys are just incredible listeners. We like spending time with patients typically. That's good. Yeah. Excellent. So a uh, Facebook viewer asked if you could talk a little bit about Sjogren's. Um, this patient has rheumatoid arthritis and Sjogren's. So, um, Martina, want to let them a uh, little bit about? Sure, Sjogren's is another autoimmune disease, fairly rare, uh, or not as uh, frequent as rheumatoid, um, that is characterized by dryness in the eyes and mouth, but this is uh, what, how you know it by symptoms. And what it means is that the immune system is attacking the glands that produce tears and saliva, um, so people have the dryness. That's what alerts you to it usually. Uh, that's the typical presentation of Sjogren syndrome. Rarely, um, as I'm just working up another patient, he presented with uh, interstitial lung disease or difficulty breathing, inflammation in the lungs. Uh, he had to be actually hospitalized and work up for rheumatic um, illnesses, came up with positive SSA and SSB antibodies. So, Sugar and antibodies A and sugar and antibodies B are often positive in patients with sugar and syndrome. Not always, but frequently. Okay, so there's there's kind of, and I know there's like certain antibodies that you look for, like uh, with lupus, the anti, the double-stranded DNA and single-stranded DNA. Um, are there other ones that you kind of, what other tests would be run? I mean, this isn't kind of the run-of-the-mill test that family practice that I'd be ordering. These are highly specialized for you guys. I, I think it always comes back to that history and physical, what the patient is complaining of and, and selecting which ones we're, we're going to be looking into. Um, a lot of times those anti-nuclear antibodies will have a, a reflex where they'll run some of the more common uh, serologies as well. Um, but we typically tend to lean towards ones that are more specific for the disease states that we suspect a little bit more highly. Okay, so after listening then you can kind of so, okay, let's do this test and that. You don't just shotgun and order every test in the book. Try not to, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. that would get really expensive very quickly because these are pretty highly specialized. Are these um, stuff that's generally able to be done in the uh, regular hospital lab or does it have to be sent out to some specialty lab? It depends on the disease state, but most hospital labs are outfitted with your more common ones such as the SSA, SSB. You talked about a double-stranded DNA mm -hmm. and we've already mentioned things like a rheumatoid factor and something called a, a CCP that we use for rheumatoid arthritis. These ones are commonly picked up by most labs and, and um, 
uh, are carried locally, but sometimes there's specialized ones that we have to send out more. Okay. Are x-rays ever helpful in this diagnosis? They're or? quite. I, I tell my patients, you know, over time, if you've had ongoing inflammatory arthritis, the risk for damage accrues. And so um, our history and physical tells us a lot, and labs sometimes give us prognostic value, but x-rays tell us the story of what's been happening over the years um, and, and kind of help us differentiate, sometimes even mechanical forms of arthritis, which need a different approach than an autoimmune type of arthritis. All right, excellent. Well, a viewer from Rapid City wants uh, you guys to address the new biologics used for rheumatoid diseases. Um, and how do they hold up when people are getting vaccines, uh, like the COVID vaccine um, or the flu vaccine? Are those as effective? Do they need to get uh, a third dose, a booster? Uh, Martina, would you like to? So we have we have quite a few biologic medications for rheumatoid arthritis. As Mark alluded to earlier, they revolutionized the space of rheumatology because we no longer see um, deforming rheumatoid arthritis if the patient is treated. Um, as far as the vaccine, it is true that some uh, biologics do portend quite a bit higher risk of not responders to the vaccine. I'm going to pick on rituxan, rituximab. And um, that's because it's rituxan um, disables B cells, which produce antibodies. So there are many people who do not yield, who do not have proper response, who, don't, who do not produce antibodies to the virus as a result of the vaccine. And um, well, we do have now partial answer, the antibody that it was just recently approved to be given prophylactically to patients on rituxan that uh, protects them from uh, severe infection or even getting the virus for six months. Uh, and I apologize, I'm blinking on the name of the brain name of the antibody mix. Well, that, that is really encouraging, uh, especially with our numbers uh, just kind of skyrocketing recently. So, yes, excellent. So a viewer on Facebook wants to know if there's any correlation between arthritis symptoms and menopause. Sometimes the hormonal shifts that patients can go through are triggers for autoimmune diseases. Um, pregnancy being a really classic example of that. And so certainly that, that can um, certainly trigger that. Again, it depends on the arthritis as well. Um, gout comes to mind as far as increasing risk factors for um, postmenopausal women. Most patients who have gout are younger men or, or women postmenopause um, when they first have gout for the first time. And so it just depends on the arthritis. Okay, all right. Well, this sounds, question is right up Martina's alley. A viewer uh, has a form of arthritis uh, called ankylosing spondylitis, took naloxicam for many years um, for the pain, but that upset his stomach. Now he's on Celebrex because his rheumatologist thought it would be easier. Uh, any new medications for ankylosing spondylitis or um, kind of is that kind of bring down the inflammation? Is that our best bet at this point? Uh, of course, we have um, quite a few medications. Um, Sometimes I'm just going to comment that maybe the reason his rheumatologist has not offered a biologic medication was because he may have had the disease for so long that there is no disease active, there is no active mm -hmm. disease, and that the pain may be secondary to osteoarthritis or the damage that was accrued as a result of ankylosing spondylitis. But we always try to check for disease activity. That's one of the things that we do as part of uh, a job of rheumatologists. We 
we determine which patient is a good candidate for biologic, even if they do have already established diagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis. So uh, to answer the first part of the questionnaire, so there are TNF inhibitors, which are um, medications like Remicade and Relhumira, the same ones that we use for rheumatoid arthritis. And then uh, recently approved um, was uh, Rinvoc, previously Zalgen, but they have a black box warning. And then Ixakizumab is another biologic injectable. So we don't have one that is preferred. We start with one that, unfortunately, I have to say, it's driven sometimes by insurance companies. Uh, but yes, we have a repertoire of biologics we can try um, um, to go to go to, yes. Okay. Just have patients now with COVID kind of been holding off on some of the biologics because they're afraid of that immunosuppressive part or, you know, going longer between infusions or? Uh, for the most part, the American College of Rheumatology has recommended that we proceed with the treatment of an autoimmune disease as we previously would, um, knowing that there is a low threshold for things like the antibody infusions should a patient contact co or contract COVID. One of the principles that we'll often apply is if a patient is ill, that they skip their biologic. Um, for people who don't know what a biologic medicine is, it's an immunosuppressive medicine. It's kind of the pillar of what we are using to treat these patients, meaning we, we partially slow down the immune system uh, in a targeted way, depending on the disease state, um, to help better control the inflammation. So it increases risk for infection to some extent. Um, it's one of the major side effects, but also one of the major goals, which is to slow down that immune system. So, Excellent. Well, a caller from Watertown has been struggling with fibromyalgia since they were 20. Now they are 60, but after listening to the show, they're wondering if it sounds more similar to lupus. Um, so this caller is wondering, are the medications for lupus similar to that of fibromyalgia, um, or are they different, uh, Martina? Yes, thank you. So the medications for lupus are completely different from uh, medications for fibromyalgia because uh, lupus is an autoimmune illness. So we use medications to bring down the immune system, as Mark previously mentioned. Um, and also we decide based on which organ is involved. When it's more skin and joints, we tend to use hydroxychloroquine. If it's more severe joint issue, we tend to use methotrexate. When it's more kidney disease, we use yet other medications. So it's uh, fibromyalgia, on the other hand, is a non-autoimmune disease, or at least most of it is not. It currently, it's believed is non-autoimmune. It causes a lot of pain, but no tissue damage or inflammation. So it's um, not generally treated um, with some. Sometimes it's not even treated with medications. We apply different techniques. Um, that I can mention later. But what I would recommend to this uh, my listener is to have an evaluation by a rheumatologist so that they can state with certainty what, uh, which um, diagnosis she has. Uh, in what it, it, The good news is if she has had symptoms since the 20s and she's not severely ill or she doesn't have organ damage, it's probably not uh, lupus. But at the same time, every disease has a spectrum from the mildest to the most severe. So it's, it's absolutely helpful to have a rheumatologist evaluation, in my opinion. Excellent. And these relationships are over a period of years. It's not you're going to see them once and say, oh, we're good, and you don't need to come back. You're going to follow up with them frequently. Sounds like you become very good friends and close with your patients after. Yeah. The hardest part, you know, I think, in initially diagnosing an autoimmune disease is 
realizing that there's not a cure for any of these so far and the best we can do is approach remission and so um, it makes a difference you know to have a, a long-lasting relationship with your patient from that perspective too it also helps you pick up on the nuances of how they express things like pain which are really difficult to pick up on and really hard to articulate that's why a lot of times in, in a patient's mind and in a lot of healthcare providers minds it's really hard to differentiate where the pain is coming from whether it's from a fibromyalgia whether it's from an osteoarthritis or a mechanical dysfunction or whether it's from your immune system misbehaving and so um, you know taking time to, to develop that relationship over time and, and even tease out you know is a patient's rheumatoid arthritis under control or is this the natural progression of an osteoarthritis you know from their knees maybe injured from their football days and are now having you know wearing out of the cartilage that maybe they need to be addressed by an orthopedic surgeon or through physical therapy you know um, I try to try to stress things to my patients you know such as uh, mechanical issues requiring mechanical solutions you know physical therapy weight loss goals things for more general wear and tear arthritis versus you know the autoimmune diseases which typically de require degrees of immunosuppression depending on their activity as opposed to fibromyalgia which requires different lifestyle interventions maybe some subtle medication adjustments and um, they're all slightly different goals yeah is there anything on the horizon looking for cure or, or is this still going to be like you, you manage this disease I mean, we're always optimistic. Um, the, the nice thing about um, our, our field is every couple of years we get a couple new medications out that um, help us help us with patients that maybe we've had a hard time getting them under control. I mean, I think we probably have all have had an experience as rheumatologists where you, you finally find the right combination of medications to help control the inflammation that maybe was stubborn. Even in the last year, we've had a couple of new FDA-approved medications for lupus and lupus nephritis, which has been exciting. Excellent. So a lot of things are always changing. Medicine's always evolving. We're always looking for new new answers. So, all right. A viewer states that they take the immunosuppressant Cellcept. Has there um, has this been found to affect the immune response to the COVID vaccine in any way? I think um, the recommendations are to hold the medication uh, for a week after. But I uh, am not. Um, entirely sure whether it has changed in the last couple of weeks. I have not checked. Um, what did you know, Mark? I, I think it. I think it depends on what the cellcept is being used for, how stable that disease state is. Um, certainly, cellcept is often used in things like organ rejection or anti-organ rejection as well for transplants, as well as things like lupus nephritis, sometimes autoimmune muscle diseases. And so it just depends on what phase of their treatment they're in. And so that, that takes a little bit more of a nuanced um, medical opinion, typically with their rheumatologist or the prescriber of the Cellcept. Okay. So a Facebook, Facebook viewer says she lost her sense of smell and taste years ago. Uh, ear, nose, and throat doctor thought it was some form of autoimmune disease. It, any idea which one could possibly be the culprit with that? That's a hard question to answer, um, mostly because we don't have all the answers still. I mean, I think every decade that goes by, there's been landmark progression in how we understand what the immune system does, but we're still just learning um, how, how certain things manifest. Um, when it comes to autoimmune sense of loss of hearing, smell, taste, I, I, I don't think we have really good answers from that perspective. Do you have any insight on that, Martina? I was just going to say, I feel bad for the patient. I, um, from the top of my head, like Mark, I can't think of any known brand name rheumatic disease that causes both without like anything to show uh, for it. But I, um, yeah, I, I'm afraid I cannot answer. 
All right, and, and honestly, I think that's uh, sometimes the bravest thing a doctor can say is, I don't know, and, but I'm not going to give up and we're gonna keep looking. Certainly. So, so definitely. All right, well, the winner of our drawing tonight is Mary from Watertown. Thank you, Mary, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. Due to the surge in COVID cases, we invited Dr. David Basel, Vice President of Clinical Quality with Avera Medical Group, to clarify the changes in CDC isolation criteria. So the studies have shown that Omicron has a quicker onset from exposure to time of symptom onset, and then uh, the decrease in the viral load decreases quicker after you start having symptoms. And so it's kind of a shorter course of illness for many people than say Delta or previous ones. Thus, the CDC has shortened the time of isolation down from 10 days, which has been for the last two years, down to five days in most cases. So as long as you're feeling better, uh, you don't have a fever, your symptoms are on their way to resolution, you can stop isolating after day five and then just continue to wear a mask for the next five days. So if you're a COVID positive individual, you should be wearing a mask around anybody, including family members, if at all possible. If you're quarantining because you've been exposed to somebody, similarly, the best advice is to wear a mask in all situations as you're waiting to see if you're gonna catch it or not. Because if you don't wear a mask, say around family members, and you do end up catching it and turning positive, then all of a sudden those family members are also going to have to go into quarantine, whereas if you were masking, uh, that might not be considered a, a full exposure at that point. So the good news about all of these shortened length of durations is that we're getting people back to work sooner. In the pediatric population, that means we're getting them back to school sooner. And so if they're testing positive, then they're going to get back to school after that five days if they're improving. We all know school is critically important, so the sooner we can get folks back, the better. Same sort of thing if they're vaccinated uh, children, which all children age five and above are strongly encouraged to get vaccinated at this point, so all school-age children pretty much. Um, if they do have a close exposure and they've been vaccinated, they don't have to exclude from school under quarantine in that situation as long as they remain asymptomatic. The other point that's probably worth mentioning that's really kind of a confusing point even for the physicians right now because it's changed so much back and forth is the, whether or not to test at that day five point. And I think ideally in a perfect world, we would like to get that test at, at day five. Unfortunately, we just don't have the testing capabilities to do that for everybody right now. And so the CDC has said when testing is in limited supplies, which it is right, right now, then you can go ahead and go off of your symptoms or lack thereof to end your isolation or your quarantine. And so that's pretty much what we're rec recommending at this point until the demand for tests has calmed down a little bit and, and it's a little bit easier to get a test. So if we go to the telestrator here, here's our patella here, here is the articular cartilage, the cartilage that covers the back side of the right. kneecap. And any one of these three things, the quadriceps tendon, the patellar tendon, or this cartilage on the backside of the kneecap could be causing this pain. 
Well, it, it seems like things are always evolving and changing with uh, recommendations and with COVID. So um, has that affected your patients at all? Have you had to change what you're doing with your office practice for either of you? I, I can't imagine that any of us have gotten away without making changes or making adaptations, but thankfully, you know, we've had guidelines and recommendations from the American College of Rheumatology that help kind of navigate these waters, and um, we talked about things like holding certain medications before um, a vaccination, perhaps what to do if patients are ill. Um, these are always evolving things for us, and so um, certainly we've, um, we've seen adjustments, but thankfully the patients um, can still get treatment. Okay. Excellent. Well, this has been a very uh, informative and a personal um, show for me because I definitely uh, have a vested interest in learning more about uh, rheumatology and uh, the diseases that you treat. And I really appreciate how much uh, you guys do to help your patients to listen to them because I um, that is really the important part here to listen there. So. A big thank you to our guests, Martina and Mark, for volunteering to help us with your questions regarding rheumatic concerns. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and be sure to look for the podcast on this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us as we celebrate our 20th season of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. in charge of tonight's program. It is one of our most popular topics, Ask the Prairie Docs. Next time, On Call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. We all want our friends, neighbors, and fellow South Dakotans to have the ability to make appropriate decisions about their health care. To do so, they need access to information from reliable sources, like our Prairie Docs and their guests. Hello, I'm Stephanie Herseth Sandlin, and I serve on the Volunteer Board of Directors for the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 founded by Rick and Joni Holm. This year, we celebrate the 20th season of Prairie Dog programs, which are so helpful and important for all of us, especially for those who choose to live in more rural communities in South Dakota and neighboring states. Truthful, tested, timely medical information for 20 seasons and beyond. We can do it with your help. Please consider a personal or corporate gift. Go to prairiedoc.org and click on the donate button today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Dog has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Dog on South Dakota Public Broadcasting.
Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings, Madison, Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponsant Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Hill Communications. 